Here we are, May 11, 2014, lecture discussion number 155 on the Book of Romans. Special Mother's Day lecture. It actually has a Mother's Day element to it. That'll surprise everybody. I know. And before we start, I got a letter. And I wanted to read it into the, the record so that the people in, who are listening to us down in Shoreline, Washington, uh, could know that uh, how much we appreciate them contacting us. It says this. Hello, Pastor Steve. It's from Mary. Hello, Pastor Steve. I have a Bible study every Tuesday. Oh, I was incorrect. I thought it was Monday. I have a Bible study every Tuesday at a nursing home in Shoreline, Washington, just north of Seattle. We go through the Bible, one chapter a week. That's pretty fast. We're on one verse a year. But they're, they're doing good. Those who attend vary from saints who have been walking with the Lord for 80 plus years to those who just got a few weeks, who just a few weeks ago accepted Him as their Lord and Savior. They really look forward to their weekly Bible study. We are in Exodus chapter 12 and I need your help. I have been able to match most of what happens in this chapter to Jesus in Passover week with one big exception and, and one not as big to me. The big one is a, I gotta take my glasses off to read it. The big one is a midnight when the firstborn children of man and animal die. I know that midnight to them probably was not the same as midnight to us. Actually, probably was the same. Uh, what's different is the beginning and the end of the day, the 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. I know that midnight to them probably was not the same as midnight to us, but my question is, what is the corresponding midnight after Jesus' death? Jesus was the lamb, the firstborn males of the Egyptians and their animals died. By the way, that's a very complicated question. Is there an age of majority or an age of accountability? What age were the firstborn? Some of you, of us are firstborn, I am not, but my brother is 63. Did all firstborns die, or was it only to a certain age? That's a, a question that has to be discussed. I cannot find the New Testament equivalent for this one, unless it is First uh, Peter three eighteen twenty two, when Christ makes a proclamation to the uh, uh, the angels, the fallen angels in prison. That's all I can guess. The other one is the bread in verse thirty nine. Seems to be saying the mixed multitude baked the dough unleavened since they were driven out of Egypt. I am assuming the Israelites would not have had any leavened bread at that time. It is an interesting verse to, to ponder. I am sorry to ask, fake sorry, because I am really glad to know there is someone like you who wants to understand these things. But sorry that you have emails from all over the place when you have your own congregation to take care of. If you can possibly give me just a brief answer about the big question by Monday afternoon. Or have one of your brilliant and most holy buffet attendees. They could answer. Thank you very much. God bless you and your family. Please don't do anything more to hurt your body for a while. From your sister with love in Christ Mary. P.S. She says this. I do have a church home, but not like Cliffside. And I want to say, Mary, that could be said by almost everybody. <laughs> Everyone that has a church home. Odds are it is not like Cliffside, so so that that's okay. Uh, I just want to let you know that she's out there and uh, to read it. Uh, and uh, Mary, I sent you an email. Uh, the key to the midnight question um, is, it, <coughs> excuse me, is it connects to uh, the virgins, the ten virgins 
the foolish virgins, the virgins with oil that had extra oil, the virgins that had only the oil in their lamp, uh, Matthew 25, 6. What you do all the time is you go and you find all the midnights. And, and you'll find that Christ comes at midnight. He's the one that comes. It says so. I am coming to uh, on midnight to slay the Egyptian children. That's what he does. That's him that does that. You'll call it, some people will call it the angel of death. The angel of death is Jesus Christ himself, God himself. So find those places in the Bible. And I gave uh, uh, Mary some background on that. So find those places in the Bible that... Uh, uh, where Christ comes at midnight, or midnight is a place where some dramatic change has happened, because that's what midnight represents. Um, something is changing that is powerful. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to read that, because I like that part where I have a church, but it's different from Cliffside. That made me laugh. Yes, sir. No, I did not say, I didn't, and no one could hear you. So. <laughs> As you might know, um, we have come to a complete dead stop. And we are um, at Romans 9, 12 through 13. And we are stopped, Jacob and Esau. And that's appropriate because Jacob and Esau carry with them uh, this tremendous meaning. And they are representative. And uh, Scripture declares them to be representative. So whenever we come across Jacob and Esau in the Bible, you're going to stop or you should stop every time. It becomes important to recognize what the subject is because it may not be the literal person Esau. It may not be the literal person Jacob. If you remember from our list on the other side of this board from last week, uh, Jacob and Esau represent nations. Two nations are inside of you struggling. One of them is the nation of Edom, that is Esau's um uh, descendants, and the other is the descendants of Jacob, Israel. So that is always a possibility. Is it not the person? Is it the person, or is it in fact the nations that is being repre- discussed or being addressed in the in the scripture verse that you happen to be uh, looking at? Is it the flesh nature, or the spirit nature, the old new or new nature? Because Jacob and Esau have that representation uh, with respect to uh, our nature, this the the flesh or the old nature. And the new nature. Some would say believer, unbeliever. But I just want you to know that Esau and Jacob actually say and do everything that the Bible says. It's literal. They actually literally say and do what is recorded that they said and did in the Bible. So make no mistake about that. But as God does with others, for example, just quickly, Moses and Joseph and Jonah and Adam and Aaron and Jeremiah and David and Solomon, just to rattle off a few of them. He does with them what he does with Esau and Jacob. He, he utilizes elements of their lives to teach us of himself and what he says is true. The Old Testament testifies of Christ. It testifies of God himself. Christ uh, is the physical, the adding of humanity, the second person of the triune Godhead. It testifies of Christ. It is filled to the brim with portraits of Christ. If you fail to know that as you read it, you will not understand what it is saying. And you will make every mistake possible. There is no mistake that you will not make if you do not understand that that Bible, the Old Testament, overwhelmingly is is about Jesus Christ and, and filled to overflowing with portraits of him. And that's without dispute. 
No one disputes that. But the Old Testament is also filled with complex symbols and events which explain doctrines and truths as well. For example, with that, Egypt, uh, Israel in Egypt. That's a picture of a, of the people of God trapped in a, in bondage, in captivity, in slavery, being destroyed by their environment. That's a picture of us. We are in this world being destroyed by it. We're in captive, in bondage. We're in turmoil. And so Israel and Egypt is, uh, teaches us of this, of the world that we're in. Israel in the wilderness or in the desert. God looks at this world. You may, I never cease to amaze me if people talk about how beautiful it is. Well, it is, and it's complex and all of that, but God sees it really as a wilderness, as a desert, as a wasteland. That's our world. Tells us don't get attached to it. Why not? You're going to fix it. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Three guys in the furnace. Notice I didn't use their Babylonian names. There's three guys in a furnace there. Didn't get burned. That's a picture of Israel in the world. The signs of Ezekiel. He's laying on his side. He's doing all kinds of things. The dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Jacob's ladder, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Joshua's battle. Again, those are events that teach truths. They actually happened exactly as he says they happened, but they also have inside of them, if you will, these amazing, deep, mysterious truths. And all of those are, 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 you should begin to look for them all the time. Real people, real events, God placing deep truths inside. So, said that, repeated that, I should repeat it as much as I can because I know so many people pick us up and they hear one or two lectures and they don't, uh, they don't ever go back. I can't blame them. I don't like watching reruns or old movies or anything either. I like to see what's new, so I understand people that won't go back. Uh, and every now and then I need to make sure that they know those kinds of things, even though you've all heard them many, many times. But I have a point to make about Esau. Esau is a nation, and he is a person. And when you read about Esau, you've got to determine the reference, what the purpose of the reference is that you've just read in Bible, in the Bible. Esau can mean different things, so ask which of the different things is being addressed. Don't assume it's the person. Look at the context. Look at what the, uh, what is being said. That's the mistake that's in Romans 9 all the time. And, and especially, uh, and I should say that, when, when you are reading about Esau outside of the book of Gen- Genesis, for example, in Romans 9 and Hebrews 12, 16, ask yourself, is this verse about the person, the individual Esau? Or is it about the nation? Or is it about something else? Esau is a complex subject, and, and I want you to approach Esau with the respect and care that is deserved by this complex subject. Uh, last Sunday in the postgame portion of the lecture, um, I mentioned this. I said that Esau has a relationship. I don't remember which one of you came and talked to me about it. I said Esau will tie very, very well to Samson. They share a great deal, and in the, what they share is that they're both difficult to, kind, to contain, for lack of a better word. They're not consistent. They're not simple. They're not straightforward. Uh, 
you have to spend time to understand Samson, and same for Esau. Same for quite a few. I'll rattle them off here in a minute. But Samson might be the best example of, of a person that God utilizes for all kinds of different things that is not consistent. Aaron might be another one. For example, I hope you're familiar with Aaron and his golden calf plan, right? So, he's, here's Aaron involved in this conspiracy, and then of course he denies it to make the golden calf. And, but then, that's, can we all agree that was a bad, that's bad. Hope we can. But then we have Aaron rushing into the midst of the people who are dying of the plague with his censor, censor. And he makes atonement. He stands between death and life. He stops the plague of death. And clearly, who is he a picture of? Running into the mist, saving people from the plague of death. With his, He's the priest in his priest garments. He makes atonement. He intercedes. He stands in in between death and life. There he's obviously a picture of Christ. So on one hand, I've got Aaron making a golden calf. On the other hand, I've got him this fantastic picture of Christ. Point being that Aaron is not always a picture of Christ. Aaron causes Israel to worship an idol and die. And I hope you can see that's not, that's not Christ-like. Samson, Esau, very much the same way. So if you have Esau pigeonholed, I hope that I can rattle you out of that today. You see, Samson, first and foremost, was a um, he was a Nazarite. Yep, got to spell it right. Some would say Nazarene. I'm sure you've seen those. You spell everything correctly. Uh, the correct word would be Nazarite. And uh, Christ, by the way, himself, Samson's mother is on that list of barren women, right? However you want to count, she's either number four or number five. Barren woman, miraculous birth list. And Christ comes to Samson's mother. So I want to read that today for you. It's in Judges 13. So you begin to see, if you can get a grip on Samson, it'll help you as you run through the Bible. Especially the Old Testament. So here comes Christ himself. God himself. I'll start at verse 3 of chapter 13. And the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see the angel of the Lord, that is always Jesus Christ. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, and that is Samson's mother, the barren woman, and said to her, Indeed now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So this is, a, this is God coming to a woman again, telling her that she's going to have a child. Make the connections. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Behold, you, barren woman, miraculous birth, shall conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of of the Philistines. So, your son will be the deliverer of Israel, Samson. 
So the woman came and told her husband, saying, The man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive a son, conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And that is uh, how the Nazaretic oath or the vow would work. There would be conditions. Most of the time, the conditions were limited to a period of time. In this case, I have no wine, no unclean food, and no razor. Don't cut the head. And this miraculous son will be a Nazarite, not for a limited period of time, but for his entire life. And you can see that Christ, of course, is a... He calls himself who? Jesus of what? Nazareth. That's not an accident. Samson is a Nazarite, has a Nazaretic element to him. Christ is the Nazarite. Matthew 2.23 tells us, the prophets, the prophets spoke that Jesus Christ would be a Nazarene. And no one has ever figured out where the prophets said that in the Old Testament. They speculate. Well, it's pretty obvious to me. I think it is. Uh, I submit that the prophecy that Christ would be a Nazarite is submitted here in the typology of Judges uh, 13. Um, that's what I, uh, I... I can't find any other... anything even close to as powerful as Judges with regard to the Nazaretic oath and the Nazarene element. Anyway, Samson is the deliverer of Israel. He's dedicated to God. He slays thousands and he's miraculously... Conceived. So obviously, clearly, that's a portrait, a type of Christ again without controversy. Can you see that? I hope you can. But then what else does Samson do? Samson marries a Philistine wife. He eats honey from the dead, from a dead lion carcass. He serves the honey to other. By the way, that is a type of who? Antichrist. That's correct. Very good. So once I, uh, uh, here I got Samson. He's a Nazaretic He's a Nazarite. He's the deliverer of Israel. He slays the enemies of Israel. He's clearly a miraculously conceived son. And yet, he's also an Antichrist. How do I reconcile? That causes people all kinds of problems. What? It's not, it's not the same. How can he be both? And they, they just are all perplexed by that. And I understand that. Samson also uh, likes uh, prostitutes. Takes a harlot. Who's that a picture of? Who who uh, will go after harlots? And is a harlot. But uh, so here again, let me to repeat, I got a miraculously conceived deliverer of Israel Then I have uh, eating, eating honey from a carcass of a lion completely against his Nazaretic vow. By the way, the dead body of the lion is an unclean thing. He puts he takes the honey out of it and he serves it to others. He has harlots all over him. He seeks them out. But then he does what? He goes uh, to a city that, it's an evil city that has people in captivity that they are oppressing. And it has these massive gates, thousands and thousands of pounds, these metal, iron, heavy gates weigh. And he tears the gates off 
and he carries them up the up a hill and he throws them almost into a valley. And the people are free. And that, of course, is obviously why. Exactly what Christ does. So, type of Christ, type of Antichrist, harlot guy, type of Christ. But then Samson loves who? Delilah. And Delilah mocks him and wants him to die and does everything she can do, conspires to have him killed. Eventually, Samson is blind, and he's chained, and he's led around by a small Gentile boy, led by a child, by a younger, if you will. I hope you go back and think now about the younger and the older Esau and Jacob. So, here he is, Samson is clearly back at Israel. And eventually, because he is led by this younger child, this Gentile child, leads him back into the surface, service of God, Samson tears down the pillars and kills the enemies of Israel. One final act of obedience to God. And it's a demonstration of the restoration of Israel to service. And I bring Samson up because I want you to know about this shifting that's happening with Samson. Because who else does it occur to? Her with? Esau. And that also causes problems for people. And I don't want it to happen to you. And hopefully, it is obvious that if you were to read a non-judge's reference to Samson, so if you found Samson somewhere else in the Bible where he's referenced, you would know immediately, okay, which Samson am I talking about here? Am I talking about the dead lion honey-serving Samson? Or am I talking about the delivered miraculous birth Samson? Am I talking about the blinded Samson? Which Samson is the reference regarding? In order to know what the meaning of the non-judges, <coughs> excuse me, reference is, I think, I hope you would recognize that it's important, it's critical to know which stage of Samson I'm talking about. The chances that I'm talking about all of Samson is very, very small. In fact, I'm going to say it's not. You have to match the Samson to wherever you're reading. Again, the miraculous Nazarite child or the honey server, the seeker of the harlots or the carrier of the iron gates, the blinded captive or the slayer of Israel's enemies. In other words, Samson, you've got to look at him really careful. Don't jump. Go slow. Same as Esau. My whole point today is to slow you down on Esau. I've done this Esau lecture many, many years ago, and and um, I've been really careful over the years that Dave said that he wrote a he writes all that stuff for you folks that listen to me on the internet and you think that I write it, I don't. Supper Dave writes all that. But he wrote something, I'll try to do it justice. He, he said that in the past, uh, Mr. Chronister was, uh, was careful with his congregations and with his uh, classes because he didn't want to, didn't want to do anything that was difficult or would cause people trouble. And now Mr. Chronister doesn't care. And that's exactly true. I'm, I'm old now. I know 
it's, it's, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to pound away with as much as I got. And, and I, I don't, I don't hold it back. In the past, I go, oh, I, I re-. actually, that's not true. Uh, Bill the Cow asked me, am I going to do the contamination of uh, Esau today? And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> but I wrote it down, Bill, for your benefit. I got it on the front uh, right there and I circled it, so I'm going to do it. Just to cause more trouble. Get more letters. But I want you to know today, when you're dealing with Esau, you've got to be saying uh, uh, when, where, and which one. Because there are many Esau's. And I realize that everyone is predisposed to gravitate towards and embrace a nice, neat, simple, uniform, consistent, typological figure. That's what you want. And Esau and Samson and Jonah aren't going to do that for you. They have big problems if you try to make them fit that. What you want them to be. They're not going to be exactly the same everywhere you read them with typologically. If you want that, most of the time you'll find Abel and Moses and Adam and Joseph and Elijah and Elisha. Those guys are pretty straightforward. You want to start with your typological studies with them? That'll help. But Esau, he's different. He's a mystery. He's not easy. He's not obvious. It's probably why I like him so much. Um, I've spent a lot of time studying Esau and Cain because I saw a long time ago this relationship between Cain and Abel and Esau and Jacob. The older one, the older kills the younger, and the other one, the older, is doing everything he can to kill the younger. So we'll get to that as we go. But I, I really found Esau and Cain and Saul and Nebuchadnezzar and Samson and Jonah to be very intriguing when I was younger, and that's why I spent so much time working through the meanings that surrounded them. All of that to say, were you weird before you came to Cliffside, or did Cliffside make you weird? Okay, last week, we solved the holding on. If you were here, not here last week, Jacob's name really means holding, heel holder, or holder honor. He holds on. That's what Jacob's actual name means. And I said that uh, um, the solution to that, uh, Jacob, is this someone who holds on. First you have to ask, what does he hold on to? He's holding on to the heel of Esau. He's holding on to Esau. What else does he hold on to? Because he's a holder honor. And I said the solution to Jacob's name and what this holding on means, this heel holding, the name of Jacob, the meaning of, of all of that is at Genesis 32. Because that's where Jacob holds on to Christ. The wrestling of Jacob with Christ. And he will not let Christ go until Christ blesses him. Is that a good thing? Holding on to Christ until Christ blesses you, is that smart? Well, I would hope we would think it's smart, but we have to compare the two holdings of Jacob uh, at his birth with regard to Esau and at Genesis 32 where he is holding on to Christ Jesus, right? So you put those together, if the holding on of Christ is good, then what am I going to naturally immediately conclude that the holding on of the heel of Esau is? Everyone will tell you that the holding on of the heel of Esau is bad. It's not. It's the same as the holding on to Christ. And that solves it for you. 
And I think the Genesis 32, I think, makes the red stew and the blessing for sale incident at Genesis 25 and the blessing of Jacob by Isaac at Genesis 27. All of that clears up now because you connect the two holders or the two places where where Jacob is holding. And then you start going around and connect all the blessings because he is holding on to Christ to get a what in Genesis 32? A blessing. So go now it's just a matter of putting it all together. Esau has this wonderful, great question that we'll get to in the weeks to come in Genesis 27:38. Esau, he has this great question that he asks Isaac. Probably, my goodness, I, I can't even, I, I can't off the top of my head think of another person who asks a question as profound as this. He says this to Isaac, have you only one blessing, my father? Have you only one blessing? How many blessings does God have? What does blessing mean? Have you only this one blessing? Father. What an amazing question. Because you see, how many blessings are there? There's only one. This makes people really unhappy. There is only one blessing. Because in that sentence, once we figure out what blessing means in this entire episode of Esau and Jacob, blessing always means the same thing. It doesn't mean money. God does not care about money. He doesn't care about it. Um, we always think the blessing has something to do with who's going to have the most money. No. The blessing is what? Salvation. Absolutely right. So let me repeat the question. Let me, it's, it, the, the words are interchangeable. And of course, salvation is, is Christ's actual name. Have you only one salvation, Father? Is What's the answer? There's only one salvation. There isn't any other. I know the universalists control the media now, and they have all these ways to be saved. The Bible is so opposed to that, it cannot get any stronger opposed. Even Esau can get this figured out. Have you only one salvation, Father? Yes, there's only one. There's one way, there's one person, that's Jesus Christ, who, who is the means of salvation, redemption, and eternal life. That's it. There's only this one. And all of this, the soup, the blessing from Isaac, uh, Jacob wrestling with Christ, all are about the same subject. All is the same subject. Salvation through Christ, the blessing of salvation, the blessed hope. Okay? Now, before we're going to read Genesis 32, 22 through 32, we need to re-ask the obvious questions about the soup thing and all the other stuff. When Jacob is offering soup, he's trying to get Esau to sell the birthright. 
Did Jacob know that eventually Esau would try to kill him? Had he already figured out that Esau was likely to try to kill me? Again, Esau, mighty, cunning killer. Only compared person in all of the Bible to Esau, Nimrod. Two of the most powerful killing machines in all of Scripture. Jacob is a complete man. Uncontaminated, it says. Uh Uh-oh. Jacob dwells in tents. Esau is a killer. Which one is powerfully, which one would we judge to be the winner if they started to fight? Obviously Esau. But he was not the stronger, as God defines that. But did Jacob know that eventually Esau would try to kill him over the blessing from Isaac? Yes, I'm positive he figured that out. So why did he do this? Because he holds on to the heel of Esau. And that's good. Did Jacob, another question, while he was revealing to Esau, because that's what he's doing, he knows, Jacob knows that you can't sell of the blessing of God. You can't sell salvation. Jacob knows that. And he knows it's not about the money, but while he is revealing to Esau that Esau had no regard for the, uh, no love for the Abrahamic covenant. Esau, and that's the behold, I'm about to die. Esau says, behold, I'm about to die. And he has no regard for his own salvation. Point out last week, just like the first thief on the cross. Esau facing imminent death, being hunted, had no concern for God's salvation. So did Jacob do this, sell me your birthright thing, for Jacob's sake or for Esau's sake? I'm telling you, it was for Esau's sake, because Jacob holds on to Esau. That's what he does. That's what he's doing. So how so is what Jacob did with sell me your birthright? How is that for Esau's sake? Again, Jacob knew the salvation of God cannot be sold, nor can it be transferred. My salvation doesn't help any of my children. I can't transfer it to them. They have to have their own. I can't transfer it to my brother. I can't transfer it to my friends. Salvation is an individual event. Past the age of accountability. Jacob knew that. He knew the salvation of God cannot be sold. So he can't buy it from his brother. And Esau is admitting to Jacob that he has no regard for it. I am, behold, I am about to die. If you're about to die, you would think this would be the point in your life where you would care the most for your salvation. But not Esau. And that is uh, an admission in my view that uh, Esau at 25, Genesis 25, 29 through 34, is an unbeliever. And that, by the way, is Jacob's intention. He makes Esau admit it. Nothing was transferred there. Nothing was sold there. Can't. Esau can't sell it. Jacob can't buy it. Esau can't buy it back. The blessing, the birthright, is about salvation. 
in all of these passages. As an aside, believers usually do not have utter disregard for Christ. Certainly at the time of their death, they have hope. So Esau shows the characteristics of an unbeliever. How, by the way, is that? He's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. You're talking about people that have physical proof that God exists. And then immediately, once Jacob gets Esau to admit that he is an unbeliever. So I have an unbeliever. I'm going to tell you it's almost the equivalent to Esau is the most powerful member of this family, this group of people, of which is probably very large. Could be as much as a thousand people there. It's a great big group. Esau is the most powerful one. He's the firstborn son. He has priestly garments. And he's a what? Jacob got him to admit that he's what? An unbeliever. I probably in my lifetime, I have to think about it, I just guess 500 churches. I walked in, I've walked into the door, 500 churches, listed, listened to 500 sermons, and I can tell you within 10 minutes whether or not the pastor is saved. What what percentage of pastors are saved in churches today? What would you guess? I'm going to tell you, it's probably not 50%. I'm going to say the unbelieving pastors are outnumbering the believing pastors. And that's in the Christian churches. I'm not going into the cult or the sect. So, and it doesn't take long to find out. You just go up. Who is Jesus Christ? Ask that question. If they don't come out God himself, then you've already started in the wrong spot. And you say, I'll take my tithe back now. Never give money before the sermon. That's the rule. (laughs) There are churches, by the way, that do that. They take the offering after the sermon, kind of a performance-based system. I I would never have the courage to do that. But anyway, all of that to say is that Jacob got Esau, the priest of you, if you will, the one who is designated to be the religious leader at some point of this group, got him to admit that he had utter disregard for his own salvation, even at the time of his death, which didn't happen and couldn't happen. Esau hadn't had a family or children yet. Esau had no concern for his salvation. And I'm telling you, the first person that Jacob told that to was who? Who was the first person? He has evidence. Who's the first person he goes to talk to? Who else is holding on to Esau? Right. Special Mother's Day sermon, right, baby? Rebecca the mother loves her son and grieves for him and is absolutely destroyed by her son. And he would tell her, Jacob is not saved. That's what mothers need to know. I'm sorry, Esau is not saved. Last week I said Jacob instead of Isaac. This time I said Jacob instead of Esau. Hopefully Ben fixes that or Dave. Jacob would immediately go to his mother, Rebecca. And then what would Rebecca do? Who would she go to? Who would she go to? She would go to the father, Isaac. Uh Uh-oh.
How was this affecting Rebekah? How did it affect Isaac? And when Rebekah planned to substitute Jacob for Esau so that Isaac would not sin grievously, you see, because that's what goes on pretty soon. Isaac is about to do something profoundly stupid. And Rebekah is trying to stop him. Did Rebekah know that when she's trying to stop Isaac that Esau will now try to kill Jacob? Yes. Did Jacob know Esau's coming for me if we do this? Yes. They both knew it. Of course she knew it. But she does what she does. She puts the priest garments of Esau on Jacob. She glued on hair. She made some wild game food dishes. And so that Isaac and Esau would not go through with a ceremonial blessing that God said would be bestowed on Jacob. She's playing defense. Why is she playing defense? Why does she have to play defense? Why is Isaac doing this? Why is this happening? Why is the father Isaac? This is Isaac, the one that goes up the mountain. With Abraham, the very mountain that Christ will be, the very spot that Christ chose to be crucified on. Why is he doing this? Why does Jacob and Rebekah have to play defense? That's a key question. And Rebekah also knew that these would be two nations. So she knew how this would work out, at least for a while. Because they're going to have to have what? Children. Nobody's going to die until we got children. That's a real advantage. Jacob and Isaac might know that. Certainly, J- uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Rebecca and Isaac might know that. Certainly, Jacob would know it. Esau, I think, is kind of clueless for a while. Okay? That's your foundation before we get to read uh, Genesis 32, 22 through 32. Realize that Genesis 32 is also about the confrontation of Esau and Jacob, um, the wrestling of Christ, which is what we're going to read the wrestling with Christ, uh, which is what we're going to read, is placed in the midst of Genesis 32 and Genesis 33. That is Esau and Isaac's, uh, I'm sorry, Esau and Jacob's confrontation. Boy, I'm struggling for that. Becky is right. Okay, Genesis 32. Well, let's read these ten verses, and then uh, you'll be on your way with all this un- wonderful understanding of this very complicated story. Wrestling with God. And Jacob arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him. Right in the middle of this, this Esau is coming. That's how 32 of Genesis begins. Esau's coming to confront Jacob, maybe. And it continues in 33. But before that, we we have this. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, to help you, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, but he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So now again, I've got a blessing. I've got holding and a blessing. The same exact 
context, if you will, the same elements that are with Esau and Jacob, the birth and the soup. I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's what Jacob said. He's holding on. Second time he's held on. Compare the holdings. So the man said to Jacob, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. So we have a name change now. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Israel means has meaning that is illustrated in that verse. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. What is the name of the man that he wrestled with? The name of the man he wrestled with is salvation. Yeshua. Jesus. God himself. Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Peniel. For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over from Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because God touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Okay? Ask the most obvious of the obvious questions right there. We have Jacob holding on, wrestling with, struggling with, if you will, God himself. Jesus Christ, right there, Genesis 32. Can you, can I, can us, can we, can we hold on to God? I like to present this to the high school kids when I taught Bible high school that uh, this is holding on to God as he is flying around the atmosphere at the speed of light. Your plan is to hold on. How you doing? This would be like, just to give you a, a silly analogy, this would be like holding on to the wing of an F-22 while it takes off, while it does maneuvers. What's your chances? So how is it, I'm going to put it a different way, can we hold on to our own salvation? No. The answer is no. So how is it that Jacob held on to Christ? Because if you read that, you might think, wow, good old Jacob. He's did good. He, he out-wrestled God. The same weight class, maybe. One's infinite. The other one's 170 pounds. One's omnipotent. The other one, bench press, 150. But it was, it was a close match. Jacob had him down almost 10 teams. Is that what you think? Help me. How is it that Jacob held on to Christ? Jacob obviously did not hold on to Christ. So, how is it that he held on to Christ? Christ held on to Jacob. Just as Christ holds on to us. That's the eternal security doctrine, by the way. 
But Jacob, the heel holder, that's his name again, held on or thought he held on. Maybe he knew he wasn't holding on. He was just going to do what he's got to do any way it worked. He's doing it. And he's not going to quit. What an incredible testimony. He is going to hold on to his Savior with everything he's got, even though everything he's got can't get the job done. And this went on for hours, all night. The first time I heard somebody address this once, he said, here is a man that held on to Christ all night long for hours and hours and hours, and I can't keep you people awake for 20 minutes. I thought that was very funny. (laughs) God is dragging Jacob around. Now, he's 97 years old here. That's different than our 97, but it's certainly a guy in his... I would guess it's probably in his 50s in our, our, maybe my age, 61. Lord help him if he was that old. But here is Christ dragging him around for 10, 12 hours, if you want, in the middle of the night. And he, and he won't let go until finally light comes. And then the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, gives Jacob a limp, a wound, if you will, and a new name, Israel, which means fights with God or struggles with God or God's fighter. Some will say prince with God. That's not defendable. God's fights with God's probably correct. Because that is a who. If there's ever been a nation that fights with God, who is it? It's Israel. They're doing it. They're still doing it. going to do it all the way to the bitter end. He calls them stubborn, stiff-necked people. And by the way, they're, when you want to, want to see what, what, what we're like, just look at Israel because they're a mirror of us. Again, this wrestling match is about the blessing of God, which is salvation, which is life as God defines life. Jacob valued the blessing of God, the salvation of God. That's what he valued. It was so critically important to him. And same for his mother. That's why they are never, never spoken of uh, in this regard in the Bible. They are always honored in the Bible. Now, we're going to look at Genesis 33 and read that really fast. I should read the whole thing. I don't think I have time. I'll just read the part and then we'll finish it next week. I gotta read more than just this verse. Now Jacob lifted up his eyes. After this fight, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and there Esau was coming and, and with him were four hundred men. So by the way, find out all the other four hundred men. So he divided in the Bible. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. That, by the way, reminds me of Naaman in the, in the river. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And this is what Jacob says in verse 10. I have seen your face, he's talking to Esau, as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. And we'll go over this next week, but he is bringing this appeasement to Esau as if Esau is who? 
God. Now, where is the New Testament complement of that? I'm going to show you the New Testament complement. I'll read it to you. Because, of course, there's always a New Testament complement. It is in Luke 15.20. And it is what? It is the prodigal son. And when he arose, the prodigal son, and came to his father, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. It's almost word for word. What God is doing to the younger son, Esau is doing to the younger son. Esau is in what position? He's in, he's in this position. Esau. What's going on here? Now I want you to, again, explain that. Genesis 33.10. I looked at you, and, it's, and I'm seeing the face of God. Because why? Why did Jacob look at Esau and see God? What did Esau do? He got off his horse, he left his men behind, and he ran to his brother and kissed him, and they wept. That's Esau. That's, that's one of the biggest... Huh? What? In all of the Old Testament. Obviously, this is a complex story with deep meanings, and we have a lot of work to do. we got a, a ladder in Bethel to deal with. We have a feast day of tabernacles, because uh, that comes up next. And we have the blessing of Abraham, to uh, what Isaac says to both of them. And that's just to get through where? Romans 9. Because that's where we're at, trying to get through Romans 9. 12 through 14. All of that. So, the musicians, please come forward while I stall. Everybody thought last week's joke, when I said, with the musician, please come forward, was very funny. I want you to know that. In case you don't think my jokes have appeal outside of this room, there are people that think I'm hilarious. Just want to point that out. I want you to, just a second, I want you to read Hebrews 12, 16 and figure out how that fits with he got off his horse, left his men behind, ran towards his brother, fell on him and kissed him and wept. And Jacob saying, I have seen the face of God. I want you to put Hebrews 12, 16 together with that. Where Esau is called a profane man. So, who is this Esau? What's this all mean? Let's rise and be dismissed.